Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Richard Conniff, author of several non-fiction books and many articles for magazines such as National Geographic, Smithsonian, and Time. He has won the National Magazine Award. He has also written and presented nature programs for National Geographic Television, the Discovery Channel, and the BBC. Today we are going to discuss his new book, Ending Epidemics, A History of Escape from Contagion. Richard, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Wasim. It's a pleasure to be here. Richard, let us go back in time and try to understand a historic context when it comes to epidemics and widespread diseases. What did people think about epidemics before the discovery of uh, microorganisms and germs through the development of the microscope? How did communities perceive and understand illnesses that were spreading among them? Well, so it depended on on, on the time period uh, early on and, and actually up to the present day, depending on the community that you're in, it was regarded as the wrath of the gods. And um, and in fact, uh, when um, it, when he, he, uh, humoral theory began, that was an attempt to get away from these uh, sort of religious explanations and bring it down more toward natural causes. And um, and so at that point, um, the theory became that um, uh, that diseases were caused by an imbalance in four bodily humors. And uh, that idea um, spread widely and it persisted um, for a thousand, two thousand years uh, almost um, up until uh, the middle of the 19th century, uh, really. And, um, and it was, in a way, one of the most destructive ideas in uh, human history because it prevented people from looking at other real natural causes. Then what was the human response at that time to epidemics when people had limited understanding of the causes behind such outbreaks? Well, they they lived in terror, and I think it's one reason that they were so religious, because they knew that at any time, any disease could strike any of them. And these diseases struck with terrible ferocity. So the one that really interested me in this book and in this project in the first place was diphtheria. And I got interested because traveling widely for uh, the journalistic work that I do, I got an awful lot of vaccines. And one in particular that I regularly got was the uh, DTAP or Tdap vaccine. And I knew what the T stood for, tetanus, and I knew what the P stood for, pertussis, pertussis rather, or whooping cough. But I didn't really know anything at all about diphtheria. And so I started to read. And um, and it turned out that in New England, where I live, uh, there was an incredibly devastating uh, epidemic of diphtheria in the middle of the 18th century. And um, so really in, in the neighborhoods um, that I frequent, um, people would be um, getting one kid infected. And because they really didn't understand contagion or the, the idea that a disease could pass from one person to another, um, they would sometimes, when one child was dying of diphtheria, line up the other children to kiss that child goodbye and in the process, they would be spreading this infection through their entire family. And um, 
you know, I for some reason I went to one particular cemetery in the Lancaster, Massachusetts, um, and uh, I was interested because there was a family there named Morris, and in one month, um, over the course of a few days, really, they lost five children to diphtheria. Um, and oh, I should say how diphtheria works. It it, it it's it's um, it causes a gray material um, to grow in the throat, and then eventually it bridges the throat, and the child actually suffocates. And it was known at the time as the strangling angel. But but it didn't stop in this Morris family with those five children. They actually lost uh, two or three more over the next few days, and the really painful thing, I think, about diphtheria was, uh, and again, they did not know this at the time, they didn't know this until the 19th century, it had this effect of, of killing children immediately by strangling them, but then also producing a toxin which could kill them six or eight weeks later, um, just out of the blue. And um, so, so anyway, that family over that period in about 1830, 1735 rather, and then again, um, a year or two later, they lost 11 children and they're all buried there. And you can see their, their, their gravestones and their gravestones lean against each other. Like, you know, in death, even these children are huddling together. Um, so I just found that very moving. And, and, um, and, and so it engaged me in the subject of, first of all, what the diphtheria vaccine was and how people discovered it and, um, and how it changed our world and the change, changed the world of, of families with their children. What was the major breakthrough? What was the main point in time? What was the major uh, development when we we started realizing that these diseases spread from one person to another person and uh, the concept of epidemic are a community level illness? When did we first develop that idea? Well, uh, people were obviously aware of epidemics because uh, they they had lived with them and they knew that they could come in in these massive deadly waves the way plague did um and um but 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 when they started to think about the causes well the breakthrough came um in the 1870s 1860s and 70s really with um, Louis Pasteur and um Robert Koch um who discovered germ theory but to say that that was the breakthrough implies that there was this kind of lightning stroke of 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 um a, a sudden you know a, a sudden realization as if you know this was something that just appeared out of nowhere but in fact if you look at the history the, the struggle to kind of understand germ theory and and um and persuade people of it goes back hundreds of years um so for instance um when uh, european colonists arrived in the new world they brought many diseases there and but they also brought um syphilis back and um and it spread with incredible speed across Europe and incredible deadliness. And they didn't know why it spread. The usual humoral explanation was that these things were caused by changes in the atmosphere or by telluric forces, meaning earthquakes and movements in the earth, or by something in the stars. The word influenza originally meant influenza parastra, influenced by, influenced by the stars. So, um, so, um, you know, the thing about syphilis was that people um, began to think about, 
you know, why this had happened to them. And fairly soon, uh, within about 10 or 15 years, they started to connect it to sexual intercourse. And that does not mean that they, that they got anywhere near understanding the, the, the cause of it. Um, but they knew that that was the occasion for it. And, and then this idea of germ theory, um, um, you know, gradually developed uh, over, again, centuries. So, um, y- you know, the, the, um, uh, there were all these precursors of the idea um, who, who, you know, there was somebody who saw what he said were worms in the blood. Um, oh, this would have been in the 1600s, late 1600s. Um, they were actually, uh, he, was, he was looking with a microscope, but they were actually uh, medicine. They were actually, doctors now say, ordinary red blood cells clumped together. So um, there, the other thing that, that, that was a constant issue with understanding a microbial cause of disease um, was spontaneous generation. People just assumed that things could appear and cause these diseases out of nowhere. And um, so there was lots of debate over that and lots of back and forth and attempts to prove or disprove it. Um, The big breakthrough really came... um, with Antony uh, von Leeuwenhoek, uh, the he was he was basically a, a, a cloth merchant uh, um, in in um, Amsterdam, not in Amsterdam. He was in um, Delft, and he um, he used his magnifying device originally to look at the 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 weave of textures that he was selling of textiles that he was selling. Um, but then, after Robert Hooke published a book um, using his microscope to depict um, small creatures, fleas, and things like that. Um, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek got interested in using better um, magnifying device, devices to look at the natural world. And as he did this, um, he described creatures that no one had suspected to exist before. He described millions of creatures living in a drop of water. Um, everybody ridiculed that idea at first, but then Robert Hooke actually took him up on it and 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 pursued the idea and confirmed that uh, what uh, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek saw was actually true. Um, so, so that idea, um, uh, they became these, these little organisms. They didn't call them bacteria then or protozoa or anything like that, and they couldn't see my viruses, obviously. They called them animalcula, um, small animals. And um, so the, the debate then turned to whether these small animals um, were involved with disease somehow. And again, there were multiple people who theorized about that in one way or another and tried to, to come up with proof and the most interesting part of it um, for me was they turned to a, a disease that they could see, which is scabies. It's a terrible skin condition that afflicts people who are usually poor and not very well washed. And it's caused um, by a mite, uh, which is a kind of arachnid. And um, they didn't, medical authorities did not think it was caused by a, a mite, actually. Um, they thought it was caused by these normal humoral things like like um, bad air um, or, um, or, you know, movements in the earth. Um, and, um, but on the other hand, women, mothers, had a very clear idea about what caused scabies because they had to treat their 
children. And the way they did it was to take a needle and to go into the skin with a needle and pluck out this, this little creature and, and get it off their child's, child's hand. Um, so women had known that for hundreds of years, actually, and, and men, that is, the medical authorities, did not believe it. Um, it's kind of amazing to read some of the people who attempted that research, including one pair um, British researchers who induced, they used scabies to induce, um, they used uh, mites rather to induce scabies in their own hands, but they still didn't believe it. I mean, they did the experiment themselves and they ignored the evidence because they were blinded by humoral theory. So, um, you know, it goes on from there that, that people start looking at that, um, that um, at scabies, and then they extended it to a, a, a disease that affected cattle, or rather oxen, called rinderpest, and um, started making these analogies. And, um, and so it, it kind of grew from there through the, the 18th century as well, and still, you know, didn't, it was actually proposed in great detail, that is, germ theory was proposed in great detail by an Italian researcher in the 1830s. Um, he was working with a disease of silk moths, and he actually described the cause and he described the cure. He described a kind of sanitary sanitary uh, regimen that would prevent the disease from developing. But even though germ theory was really ready for the world, the world was not ready for germ theory until Pasteur and Koch in the 17th, 1860s and, and uh, 1870s. This nicely brings us to my next question. As these early pioneers were using microscopes and identifying microorganisms and trying to establish a link between these microorganisms and diseases, there was a lot of resistance. Uh, you have briefly alluded to this. What were the main causes and sources of this resistance? Yeah, there was... Uh really resistance even to using microscopes. Um, researchers who did that faced lots of academic uh, opponents who didn't want the things in their universities. Um, and they resisted. They were, they were anti-contagionist. When, when contagion became a going proposition, then anti-contagionist developed as a, as a, as a, uh, the opposite number. And, um, they, I think they thought they felt threatened because all of their conventional wisdom was based on humoral theory. And now they were going to have to go into this whole new world of creatures that they really couldn't, well, they couldn't see, they didn't believe in, and they really did believe in, in humoral theory. It had been drilled into them in medical schools uh, for centuries. And so I think that that was the cause. It was the usual... You know, they say that science sometimes advance, advances um, one funeral at a time, and it, and it's like that. It's it's you know that they had been brought up one way, and they were going to stick with that way, and they were going to fight as hard as they could to keep a new way out. At what point in history, and by what means, was the concept of immunity first developed, uh, which suggested that humans can become resistant to diseases, and how did the, this understanding of immunity? evolve uh, over time. The curious thing about immunity is that um, with smallpox, um, people didn't really understand that 
you know, that the, the, the contagion that happened that one person could pass it to another easily. Um, but, but when this method of treating smallpox or rather preventing smallpox became available in Europe in the uh, 17, well, 1721, um, specifically, um, then that force them to think differently. And I should tell you about that method, first of all. It was called variolation. And it's an interesting method because it it existed in China at least a thousand years before, and it existed um, in other parts of the world, in other countries, um, perhaps even in in Britain at at some point, um, um, well before then, but it was a kind of folk wisdom and did not... um, did not um, penetrate Europe until uh, two things happened. Uh, one was that a, a woman who was married to um, a British diplomat served in Constantinople, and she had a child. Well, she had seen uh, smallpox. She had lost a brother to smallpox. She had been deformed by smallpox, or, or, or really deformed would be an exaggeration. A lot of people had far worse scars than she experienced. Her name was um, Lady Mary Montague. Anyway, she had her child treated with variolation. And this is going to sound like an extremely risky thing for a mother to do. It involved taking material from an active smallpox pustule and then scraping that into the skin of a healthy human subject. Now, they tried to pick a mild case of smallpox so that it would be milder for the patient who was receiving variolation. Um, uh, but but really, nobody understands why variolation worked. That is, why it produced a much milder case than if you had acquired smallpox the natural way. Uh, and yet it did. Um, and the benefit was that after a relatively mild case of smallpox, you would be immune for life from the wild variety of smallpox. So this woman did that to her to her child. I think it was a son. And then she came back to the UK. And in 1721, a major smallpox um, epidemic hit. And she started to talk about doing this again. She wanted to do it for her new daughter who hadn't been uh, available for it in, in, in Constantinople. And so, um, uh, they, uh, she talked it up. It became a, a major thing in London. Then she got the Princess of Wales involved as a backer. The Princess of Wales eventually, after various kinds of experiments that we would consider unethical now um, on various subjects who were prisoners in, and so on. Um, after that, the Princess of Wales got her children variolated and, um, and it became a, a, a practice more widespread across um, Britain and then Europe. Um, at the same time, 1721, it was introduced into North America and it was introduced by Cotton Mather, um, who was the Hellfire Boston minister best known for his role in the Salem witch trials. Uh, but he learned about variolation. Uh, he said he learned about it from literary authorities, scientific authorities. Um, but in fact, he learned about it from the man that he described as his servant, by which he meant the African-born man he had enslaved. And that man, uh, we only know his, his slave name, uh, which was Onesimus, meaning useful. That man told um, 
um, told Cotton Mather that in certain parts of Africa, people routinely variolated themselves as a way of protecting against smallpox. And in particular, other Boston men who had been born in Africa and women said that uh, when when men wanted to go off on these traveling expeditions in Africa, they often deliberately sought out variolation so that they would be protected if they were traveling two or 300 miles away. And, um, you know, this was basically travel medicine. Um, so th- there was a lot of controversy in Boston and London about introducing this idea. It was derided on ethnic grounds. First of all, in Constantinople, it was practiced by old Greek women, um, uh, which is a, a point that critics made rather vehemently. And in um, North America, uh, it was opposed um, partly because it had come from um, from Boston um, African-born Bostonians, um, most of whom were presumably enslaved, um, and and yet it worked. And um, so, at the end of the these two epidemics and the same epidemics, really in Boston and London, doctors who were involved took um, statistics on how many people received variolation and survived, uh, how many died actually, and the mortality rate was two percent um, at that point. And the mortality rate for getting smallpox the, uh, from the wild was 15%. So this was a huge savings in lives. And actually, variolation got much better. It got well below 1% as they improved the technique. And so by the end of the, 19th, the 18th century, it was the standard practice. And the thing about this um, um, was that it, it gave them a tool. You could take material from a pus... You could dry it out. Um, you could uh, carry it over distances and scrape it into somebody else's skin, and you could produce the exact same disease as as what you started with. And um, and that 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 meant, you know, that's contagion. That was that was a point at which they they were flummoxed. I think. because you know that that was a whole new way of looking at the world and of and looking at disease. The book highlights the fascinating story of how communities used cowpox to develop immunity against uh, smallpox. Take us through this story. Yes. So cowpox, again, was a folk wisdom um, in uh, the West of England in particular. Um, and it was, um, they knew that people who worked in the dairy trades um, would routinely pick up cowpox from their work and they would get it on their hands and they would get these smallpox-like pustules, but in a much less severe way. Um, and um, they would go away and they wouldn't be scarred and they would everything would be um, good. But they noticed that they were then protected from smallpox. And even though this folk wisdom existed for a long time, nobody acted on it. Nobody... Um, did much of anything with it until um, Edward Jenner in the um, the late decades of the 18th century. He talked about it in London when he was training to be a doctor, and he thought about it when he went back into the West of England to become a, a country physician. And, um, and then finally, after 30 years in 1796, after he became convinced that cowpox uh, could 
provide immunity against smallpox. He tested the idea. And again, this is an experiment that we would consider unethical today. He tested it on an eight-year-old boy in his community. And uh, then he waited a certain period of time for immunity to develop. Um, and, um, And then he tested him again with live smallpox and found that the boy was in fact immune. And so from that point in 1796, the idea spread rapidly around uh, Britain at first and then around Europe. And then immediately people began to send it everywhere in the world um, because uh, uh, the colonial trade everywhere was was pretty well developed at that point. So it was in India. It was in um Japan, um, the, the Spanish king actually launched an around-the-world expedition to bring um, cowpox, uh, which was then becoming known as vaccination from the Latin word cow, um, to bring it to all of these countries that Spain had in fact colonized and to spread it there. And they set up um, uh, committees basically to keep the cowpox alive in those countries and to, and to make sure that people got, got vaccinated. And so this was the first um, worldwide public health uh, initiative anywhere. And, you know, it was a great success. Many, many lives were saved. Um, and, and at the same time, there were many people who opposed it because, you know, you were taking a disease from an animal and, in, and injecting it into healthy humans. And that sounds scary. Um, but as I say, it worked. And most people um, overcame their hesitation and, and, and lived. Um, there is a cartoon from about 1802 um, by a celebrated uh, London cartoonist, and it shows people receiving the cowpox and having uh, cows uh, spring out of their ears and hop out of their back pockets and and um, otherwise, um, you know, deform them and their lives. Um, but as I say, most people accepted vaccination um, and it became a great uh, lifesaver throughout the um, 19th century. What was the crucial advancement that uh, facilitated the creation of vaccines formally? Well, vaccines existed pretty much in the form that Jenner uh, uh, first introduced them throughout the 19th century. And there were no other vaccines until Louis Pasteur. Um, And in the 1870s, he began to develop uh, veterinary vaccines at first. Um, And he succeeded uh, with a vaccine for anthrax, which was a a deadly disease of livestock. And again, he succeeded with uh, one against um, uh, avian avian flu. Um, and, um, And finally... He took this enormous leap um, and and developed a vaccine for uh, rabies, um, and that was a, a an extremely daring proposition because rabies was a viral disease. All of the others were bacterial, and people knew how to they they had learned how to attenuate or weaken bacteria um, to make them safer for people, um, but retain their, their, um, ability to produce immunity. Um, but a virus they knew nothing about, they couldn't see it. They didn't even know that it existed. And yet he, he did this experiment, um, that involved taking, um, 
they tried various methods and finally they hit on one um, that involved taking um, tissue from spinal tissue from a a rabbit and hanging it up to dry. Um, And after a certain period, taking that, making an injection out of it and injecting it into dogs to see if, first of all, it produced immunity. And then, you know, how you maintained immunity, got lasting immunity. And the method that he came upon, uh, finally, with considerable help from his students, involved injecting a... um, a, a vaccine that came from tissue aged um, 14 days, and then the next day you would inject uh, tissue that was injected thir- that had been um, you would inject tissue that had been hung up to dry for only 13 days, and so on until you got down to the last injection after 10 or 12 days, and you were injecting um, tissue that had been removed from a rabid animal only the day before, um, and this kind of it jump-started the immune system. The initial uh, injections provided a degree of, of, of protection, and then the final, the, the more potent injections jump-started immunity. And it was a wild, wild idea. And he tried it against um, uh, rabies in people who had been badly bitten and seemed certain to die of the disease, and, and it worked. A huge risk. I mean, uh, uh, completely out of the realm of possibility in modern medicine. But but again, it worked. The discovery of antibiotics uh, represented a significant achievement in the battle against diseases. Uh, yeah. How did that discovery occur? And what's the timeline of vaccines development and the discovery and development of antibiotics? Well, so the, the the vaccines from Louis Pasteur's time on, vaccines began to develop fairly rapidly. Um, they were used in World War One against um, tetanus um, and and a few other diseases, um, and they succeeded there. Um, and, um, and 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 so the antibiotic work really began much later. Um, and it was antibacterial uh, work uh, that started in Germany in the 1930s. And um, in the 1930s, at, a, um, at, at a, a German chemical and pharmaceutical company, they began working with dyes, with colored dyes. And this was a very strong idea in Germany then that colored dyes were important to producing um, medical therapies. And that was because... Um, a uh, an early researcher um, uh, named uh, Paul Ehrlich uh, had had made um, dyes an important part of his research, but it was in this case a completely misleading idea. So they developed um, a, an antibacterial product um, based on an azo dye. Um, they used that azo dye structure and kind of tacked on different um, substances to it hundreds of times until they found a combination that seemed to protect um, against um, infection, but it didn't work in, 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 in vitro, in a Petri dish. It only worked in a live subject. And, and that was a mystery, but nonetheless, it worked. So this drug became available in 1935. Um, it was a sulfa drug, um, and it's familiar for anybody who's watched World War II movies when people take a, a, a packet, tear it open, and 
sprinklet onto a wound um, uh, that is um, a sulfa drug they're using. Um, anyway, this sulfa drug became popular in, in Europe and also in the United States. It made a, a, a sensation in the United States because Franklin Delano Roosevelt's son developed a, a very serious infection that put him near death. This was in Christmas 1935. He was treated with sulfa drugs and... Um, and and survived, um, and so that made front page news. And by the way, by this point, they had discovered that the azo dyes that the Germans had built their 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 sulfur drugs on had nothing whatsoever to do with the protective effect. Um, the French discovered this almost immediately. Um, uh, they they found that the reason it worked only in living patients and not in vitro was you had to dissolve and get rid of the azo dye to make the thing actually function to 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 free the sulfa part of it and and um, and so um, so it, it, there was no patent at all it spread everywhere it could be used everywhere it was cheap to manufacture um, there was one great experiment in in London it was about 1938. And it was a maternity hospital. And one of the things that had plagued medicine forever was childbed fever, that women who had just given birth would would die uh, horrible deaths, very sudden deaths. Often the child would die with them. And, um, and this, there was just no way to cure it or treat it. There was a way to prevent it, but not to... But but it was only by really careful sanitation, and that often didn't work um, because people weren't careful. Um, but but in any case, they started treating these women with the sulfa drug, and and um, they found that people who had formerly died um, inevitably died, uh, recovered, and went home with their children. And so that was kind of a a great moment. But but it was really only the beginning of the antibiotic story. And what happened after that was that uh, British researchers had begun working on penicillin, and um, they could only extract it in very small quantities. And um, and you know they had to ramp it up in time. Basically, this was 1941. They had to they had to ramp it up in time for it to be available for the war, um, because it showed very good protective effects against infectious disease. They wound up bringing this uh, material uh, to the United States, and they wound up in the Corn Belt in Peoria, Indiana, and um, they were soon producing penicillin. They had originally been producing it in bedpans, you know, and, and scraping a little bit of material off the top and turning that into a drug. But in in Peoria, they were soon... Um, producing it in these huge vats and, you know, the fermentation vats. And, um, and the result was that by June 4th uh, of 1944, they were able to begin the invasion of Europe with the American and allied soldiers equipped with penicillin everywhere. And it saved many, many lives on the march to Berlin and the end of the war. It was a great combined Anglo-American effort. So these developments uh, were happening. Vaccines were being developed. Antibiotics were being developed. At the same time, the challenge was also very diverse. Diseases were being spread by mosquitoes. Uh, then there were other type of uh, diseases that were being spread through human contact. So, so, so there were many battlefronts and there were many different teams who were tackling these challenges 
at these different battlefronts. Yes, that's right. Um, the, the work on, on, on insects uh, was particularly important and still is. Um, and that, that took place in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. And um, the, the main figure to my mind is Patrick Manson. He was known as Mosquito Manson because when he was a physician in China, he developed uh, the idea and then demonstrated it that um, mosquitoes were somehow involved in spreading elephantiasis, um, which was horribly deforming disease and uh, hard to get away from, almost inevitable in, in mosquito-infested areas. Um, and then he took what he learned about the role of mosquitoes. He got some things wrong, um, but he, he was persistent in this idea. People mocked him for it, but he was persistent. And he eventually, when he returned to work in, in London because he was getting old and, and, and didn't want to stay in the colonies so long. Anyway, he was back there and he found a, um, a, a student, basically an, an alter ego, a Ronald Ross, who was in India. And he directed Ronald Ross step by step through the process to demonstrate that um, that mosquitoes actually carried the disease, um, that it uh, advanced in their bodies, and then that it it was injected through their proboscis, proboscises into um, chickens at first. That's what he demonstrated. That's what Ross demonstrated. And that was a, a, a major victory. Um, Italian researchers then said specifically which mosquitoes were responsible, that there could be no malaria, for instance, without, um, uh, without Anopheles mosquitoes. And others were demonstrating that there could be no yellow fever, for instance, without Aedes aegypti. And that became uh, transformative because so many diseases are carried not by contagion from one person to another directly so much as by um, insects and arthropods generally intervening and carrying diseases from one to another. And then there was another very interesting battlefront, and that was about sanitary conditions. Yeah. And it took a while to develop this understanding that uh, in communities, you need better sanitary conditions. Yes, that that idea began to develop in the 18th century. Um, and then as cities became rapidly more crowded because of the Industrial Revolution, people were living in incredibly squalid circumstances, packing five, ten people in a single room, single rooms often in a basement, basements often flooded from overflowing um, cesspools, open cesspools, because there were no real um, sewer systems for, for especially in poor neighborhoods, and there was no adequate drinking supply. The, the, the guy who made the, the, the most difference in changing that was named Edwin Chadwick, and he was a, a barrister um, and a journalist and um, a bureaucrat, really, in London in the 1830s and onward. And he started out um, uh, in being involved with the, the workhouse, the poorhouse system, which made him one of the most hated uh, men in in England. Um, but then he moved on from there and his exposure to the poor and how they lived showed him that something needed to be done about this, um, this combined problem of no adequate water supply and no proper system of disposing of sewage. And um, so he, 
campaigned for years on this point. He was uh, he, he produced government reports that that described the problem in graphic detail. He described how the problem caused deaths and how it caused deaths at different rates in different communities, depending on their their wealth. It was a kind of an, an, what we would call an environmental justice perspective. And he also proposed a detailed um, solution um, that is, uh, it, was, it was called an arterial venous water supply um, um, and sewerage system. And basically, there would be one set of clean water, which in London, for instance, would come in from a well upriver um, where the water was thought to be cleaner and was cleaner. And uh, on the other hand, the sewage would be piped well downriver, um, whereas in the past, water and sewage had basically gone into the Thames right there in London. And um, so people were paying for their water supply in effect drinking their own excrement. I'm sorry, that's a horrible thing to say, but that's what the situation was, and they were dying. You know, at one point, Chadwick um, uh, was urging London to reform, and the mayor of London replied that there could be no reform, that the system of water supply in London was already perfect. And about two years later, cholera came through and killed more than 14,000 people in London. And so... Um, I think Chadwick's ideas began to become persuasive and eventually London built that system and other cities across um, Britain built that system across Europe and North America and beyond. Um, and the one interesting thing about uh, Chadwick, I think, is that his sanitary reform idea still needs to be followed through on worldwide. Um, we have become an increasingly urbanized country, uh, population rather. We have become an increasingly urbanized species. We became predominantly um, urban only in this century. And an awful lot of people are living in informal communities, what we used to call slums on the outskirts of cities, mega cities everywhere. And the outcome is that more than 2 billion people in the world lack a clean water supply at home. And more than 4 billion have no access to proper sewage, um, proper sewage disposal. And, uh, you know, we have to, to deal with that problem if we hope to, um, reduce the incidence of disease. We are going to look into uh, the future challenges and the present uh, situation. But before we discuss that, I just want to comment that uh, when we look at humanity's journey through these challenges and the way you outline these various stories in your book, I think overall outlook is very positive and we should actually feel good about that in the sense that we have uh, made huge achievements. We have uh, got rid of many diseases and the longevity of the population is uh, on the rise. So overall, in these many battlefronts, if we collectively look at that, I think that there is a positive outlook. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, that's the other reason I wrote this book, um, looking back at my own life, I realized that uh, people born in the developed world, at least since World War II, have all lived incredibly protected lives like nobody else in human history, uh, protected, that is, from infectious disease. And that's also true in the developing world since, let's say, beginning in the 1980s, but mainly in in, in the 20, 21st century, um, really protected from from 
infectious diseases um, by vaccines and by antibiotics. And, and um, so this is a great thing. And, you know, the other thing is that you can see it in any family. If you ask your, your, your grandfather, your grandmother, your aunts, what kind of diseases they grew up with, and then think about what kind of diseases your children grew up with, um, it's dramatically different. I mean, for me, growing up, I had measles, mumps. Um, uh, I didn't have whooping cough, but I, I knew people who did. Um, polio was still a thing when I was a child. Um, polio was, uh, I'm sorry, summer was polio season then. And parents were desperately frightened of of letting their children out into the outdoors because they might become paralyzed for life. They might end up in iron lung machines. You know, that, that idea for kids that kids now to contemplate that, um, it, it just may, must seem unbelievable to them. Um, but it was true. Um, before the polio vaccine became available in 1955, um, that was the way we lived. You know, smallpox was still a problem in, in um, the United States until a year or two before I was born, until the mid 20th century. Um, uh, it existed everywhere in the world, or it, it existed in much of the world until the 1970s, um, and thousands and thousands of people died of it. Um, so, you know, if you had told somebody 150 years ago, when my great-grandparents were alive, that you would be able to eradicate smallpox everywhere forever, and incidentally knock out a murderer's row of childhood diseases, like measles, like whooping cough, scarlet fever, polio, and many others, they would have said that couldn't be done. And if you had told them that you would be able to double average human life expectancy everywhere in less than a century, they would have said that couldn't be done either. But it happened. And it was, to my mind, the single most dramatic change in all of human history. And yet, it's almost completely forgotten, or at least overlooked. And, um, I attribute this to the catch-22 of uh, infectious disease remedies, vaccines, and all the rest, and that is that they prevent diseases and then cause us to forget the diseases that they prevent. And I think because we forget and because we've lost these, this idea that any of these diseases can happen anytime to anyone, we think that we, we think we're naturally immune you know, people don't understand that they're protected because vaccination has eliminated polio in much of the world. It has eliminated measles. It has eliminated smallpox. That's why we're protected, even if you don't get vaccinated. And they think that we can protect ourselves by all kinds of crazy ideas. Eating kale is one of them that I read about. And, um, and, and you know, they think that we don't need empathy again because they, they don't realize that we can all get any of these diseases were it not for these medical advances. So, um, yeah, I wrote the book to remind people, I think it's really important to understand how much, how far we have come, um, so that we can, first of all, have some gratitude, but second, face up to the very real threat of major diseases still ahead. And this nicely brings me to my next question. How do you see our response, humanity's response to COVID-19 pandemic? Well, so obviously in the beginning, the, the response was um, confused because it's confused at the start of any epidemic involving a new disease. Um, and it, it was hurt 
further in the United States, which is the story that I know best, um, um, because you had a government that was in denial. Um, uh, uh, they were minimizing the danger, which actually is also something that occurs regularly at the start of a major new epidemic. And they were muzzling people who were actually infectious disease experts and stopping them from from uh, presenting what they knew to be true. Um, so, yeah, that was a very bad start. On the other hand, there had been people working in the background developing this mRNA technique um, to, to produce a new vaccine for years. Um, and they had been trying it on different diseases uh, unsuccessfully. And they applied it to the coronavirus, COVID virus, um, and um, were stunned to find that it actually worked. It was kind of a Hail Mary pass that 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 paid off um, and produced a vaccine in an incredibly short period. Um, they had a vaccine on the street less than a year after uh, the epidemic began. I mean, by comparison... Uh, they had a, a treatment for HIV AIDS, uh, uh, took them 10 years. Uh, many, many, many thousands of people died in the meantime. And that 10 years was impressive for that period. But in this case, we got there in months. Um, so that's an amazing success. Then the failure is um, that we didn't persuade people to take the vaccine. Um, people were... Their, their ideas were poisoned by misinformation, um, imaginary threats. Recently, um, the state of Florida uh, was exposed by the Tampa Bay Tribune for having warned young men of a, a cardiac problem that might result from taking the vaccine. And the way they arrived at that warning was by deliberately weeding out all the evidence that showed that the risk of getting COVID was in fact five to 10 times higher than, than if you had taken the vaccine. And so this is state-sponsored misinformation, uh, which undoubtedly caused people to die. And, and it, again, I'm sorry to be just talking about the United States, but in the United States, which again, I know better, um, um, it's estimated that at least 200,000 people died because of misinformation. That is because they didn't get vaccinated because mistaken ideas um, or deliberately distorted ideas caused them to hesitate about the new vaccine. A very interesting comment that you make in the book is that there were anti vaccine individuals even before we developed these vaccines. And now that we are talking about COVID-19 pandemic, and still there is opposition and there is resistance and there is misinformation and disinformation out there. So that battle continues, Richard? It does continue. And and the thing is, you have to... Um... You know, I think what people don't understand about vaccines and antibiotics and other preventive methods is that that they come with risks. That's There's no point denying that. Everything has risks. And if you're a parent, the job isn't to avoid something because it has risks. The job is to look at relative risks. So on the one hand, I can let my child get this disease or, or my grandparent get this disease, which might kill them or might cause long-term effects. 
or I can get this vaccine, which has risks, but you know, which of these risks is worse? The example that I think is, is most poignant uh, is measles. Um, because this this is misinformation that's been around for 25 years, almost 30 years, really. The the idea that the MMR, that the, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism has been around because of misinformation that was published, um, led by a lawyer, by a, a, um, a, a physician who was working in, in tandem with a lawyer who was suing pharmaceutical companies. They published this paper in The Lancet. Um, it turned out that um, they, they, their, their research was wrong. All of the other co-authors have since reneged on the article. The, the Lancet has reneged on the article. And tests repeatedly have demonstrated no link between that vaccine and, um, and autism. One of those tests looked at 650,000 children who had received the MMR vaccine and could find no evidence of a, of a connection. Okay, so that's a risk, uh, but it, it happens to be an imaginary risk. What if you get measles, on the other hand, or your kid gets measles? The risks there are much, much greater. Um, it's a risk of about one in a thousand cases getting um, uh, pulmonary complications or encephalitis that is a swelling of the brain. And this can lead to permanent neurological damage. Um, one in a thousand is a very high percentage. Um, and, and, um, and then there are other risks as well with measles. Um, and so it's not a trivial disease and people think it's a trivial disease. I had measles, as I said earlier, and, um, my parents thought I was going to die. Um, I didn't, obviously, but 552 children died in this country uh, that year, um, and many more were hospitalized and, and, and permanently damaged by measles. So, you know, in 2019, um, a, a number of people who were vaccine hesitant didn't get their kids protected. And as a result, in the United States, which eliminated measles 20 years ago, we had um, something like 1,200 cases of measles and 100 or more of those kids had to be hospitalized. And it's all because parents have made the, the wrong decision about risk, about relative risk, and their children suffered the consequences. Richard, we are discussing your book, Ending Epidemics, A History of Escape from Contagion. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close uh, this discussion? Yeah, I think that one of the problems we have at this particular moment is called pandemic amnesia. We want to forget. We want to just get on with our lives. And um, I understand that temptation. I want to live without face masks. I want to live without social distancing like everybody else. I want to be able to go into the office or go to a play or, you know, see a movie, all those things. Um, and yet the danger here is that um, we don't do anything about the pandemic next time. Um, and we really need to be building up our resources um, and and getting people working on research and spending money. You know, um, COVID killed more people in the United States than, than we lost in World War II. Um, it caused more economic damage, for, far more economic damage than in the, um, the, the uh, 
uh, 9-11 attacks. Um, and yet we don't have anything like the structure of, for instance, the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And we need that. We need people to be looking out on how to protect us from the various threats that still lie ahead. And um, if we don't get that, if we don't insist that that be happening, a lot of people are going to get sick and die in the near future. Richard Conniff, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Wasim. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye.